Well, turn me, if, if you will, with me, if you will, get the words out, in Luke chapter 11, to a very well-known passage, and some of it should be extremely well-known passage, uh, from verse 1 down to verse 13. And if you have really good memories and read the right literature, uh, you will know that many years ago, having preached this in several places, but not as far as I'm aware here, I put an article in Reformation Today, made it into an article, and I've said, and we heard someone once, won't tell you who it was, who had preached, who had put something in ET, and the next week we went to hear him speak, and he said, preached what we just read, and we thought, no, you shouldn't do that. If you've been, if you just put it in the art in, in some magazine, you should stop preaching it. But that's a very long time ago that this was in Reformation today. So I thought I could return to it because I think this is so important what we're going to look at tonight. Luke chapter 11 from verse 1. Now it came to pass as Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he ceased that one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John also taught his disciples. So he said to them, when you pray, say, our father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us day by day our daily bread and forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who is indebted to us and do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And he said to them, which of you should have a friend and go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves for a friend of mine has come to me on his journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within and say, do not trouble me. The door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. I cannot rise and give to you. I say to you, though he will not rise and give to him because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence he will rise and give him as many as he needs. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and he who seeks finds and to him who knocks it will be opened. If a son asks for bread from any father among you, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? And we use our minds, and they're logical, I hope. And we know that it must be that God is too good to be unkind. And our hearts betray us, don't they? So often, and we doubt his goodness. And that's really what we're looking at this evening. Uh, I didn't know how to title this, Persistence in Prayer, which is what I came out with, I think, on the sheet. The parable of the friend at midnight, we're looking at Luke 11. From verse 5 to verse 13, this comes after the Lord's Prayer. And uh, we're going to see why that in context, not looking at the Lord's Prayer this evening, but there is a progression that goes on here which I hope we can bring out. 
And in verses 5 to 13, there is a parable taught by the Lord Jesus Christ uh, in the form of a question, if this happened to you, what would you do? To teach us, to make us think, really. He doesn't teach, does he? He makes us think. Well, what would God do? And then he brings two lessons from verse 9 to verse 10 and verses 11 to verse 13. And that's how it divides up this evening. So we look at the parable, the friend at midnight. There are three men here in this little story that Jesus tells. One has come on a journey, gets to his friend's house hungry. The man who's come on the journey has no bread and he needs bread. The man to whom he comes has no bread either, but he doesn't need it. He's eaten. So he has no bread and he needs none. And he has a friend, a friend to whom he will go, saying, friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has come to me on his journey. So he goes to the man who has three loaves, and he's confident he has three loaves. And so the third man is the man with the surplus. He doesn't need bread, he's in bed. He's in bed with his children, they're probably all in one big sort of area uh, of the house. And he's eaten and he's asleep and he's got three spare loaves in his larder. And Jesus points us to what happens here. The first man who comes has an evident need. He's come on his journey. The second man can't help. I have nothing to set before him. That's both in verse 6. So he goes to this third man, the end of verse 5. Friend, lend me three loaves. He asks for help for his friend. And Jesus is saying rhetorically, will this third man say no? Will he say, look, will he say, here I am, I'm in bed, don't trouble me. I've shut the door, I'm in bed. It's night time, my children are here. If I get up, and I'm going to disturb them. No, no, I'm not going to. I cannot rise and give to you. It's too inconvenient to do anything for you. I could help my friend. I could help you, my friend. But I'm not going to. Jesus says, would that really happen? And he says in verse 8, I say to you, though he will not rise and give to him because he is his friend... Though Mr Grumpy here in bed is not going to get up and give his friend food, yet because of his persistence, the man knocking on his door, he keeps knocking. He will rise and give to him as many as he needs. If friendship is not enough motive, persistence is. It's no good me saying, go away, I'm in bed, I want to go to sleep, because if you keep knocking on my door, I can't sleep anyway, so I might as well get up and get rid of you. That's the the picture. Jesus is not saying that's a good attitude to have. He's just saying, but you know, wouldn't you give to your friend? Well, even if you wouldn't give to your friend because you're his friend, you give to him if he won't leave you alone. Now, I would suggest we are often, perhaps all the time in some senses, in the position of this second man. We have friends, and friends need help. And they need help which we can't give. And that could be practical help. 
So someone says, can you come and fix my car? And they say it to me, and I say, no. I'm quite happy to try and come and fix your car, but it won't go as well after I've fixed it as it will before. So there's many things that we just can't do it. We might, someone may need money, but we haven't got any. And people, we have, of course we do, so many of us in every way have physical needs which we cannot meet. Emotional needs, needs of, of the mind. And we can't do anything about them. We would if we could, but as the Scots say, we cannot. We can't. But what Jesus is pointing to here is a particular sort of need, though he speaks of bread. When you go on down and read what he's drawing out of this, he speaks in verse 13 of the Father giving the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. So we are meant to take this in the realm of the spiritual need. Here is a believer, and we're their friend. And they have spiritual needs. And Jesus is saying we always have someone to whom we can turn. Who has an infinite surplus of help. You see we cannot say can we and we're not meant to if you read it carefully. We're not meant to say Jesus is casting God in, in the way of this third man who doesn't want to help and has to be knocked up and persuaded against his will to do something. He's not saying that. This is a, if this, how much more than that kind of teaching. As Jesus brings out in verse 13, if you, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? And we are saying... No, Jesus is not saying that, that, this, that God is like this third man. Far from it, he is the opposite. He is our loving, heavenly Father. <clears throat> Jesus has told us to approach him here, our Father in heaven. And we are not, and we use those words, but we are not to divest them, are we, are we of any meaning? We are not to say, well, that's the formula which I'm supposed to open my prayer with, without thinking what it means. What does it mean for each of us that God is our Father in heaven? It means that he has sent his Son to die upon the cross and bear our sin in his own body and bear the wrath of God upon himself that we fully deserve and that he has done that not because there's any good in us, there is only evil. And yet he has done it. And that, as the scripture brings out again and again, I don't need to quote you texts, do I? Is love. A love which we cannot begin to understand. A love which we should believe, and which we should rejoice in, and which we should trust ourselves to, but the point is this, isn't it? If God has given us his son, as the scripture says, how much more will he not with him give us all things? And the 
answer is, of course he must, because a love which sends his son to die upon the cross for us is a love which cannot possibly have a limit. It cannot possibly be that God is, and the scripture makes it clear he is not like this, it cannot possibly be that God is a sort of God who says, well, I've done an awful lot for you in giving you my son, and he's paid the price of sin, and one day you're going to heaven, and at the moment you're on your own. You've got to sort it all out for yourself. What more do you want? Well, what more do we want? We want everything we need. And the point is, of course, that the whole point of this is that we have to take verse 13 as explaining it all. God will give us everything we need. I've preached on that before, I think. You see, the point is we have to be then, don't we, this second man. And make God the good replacement of this third man. And approach him with persistence for the needs of others. We'll say more about ourselves, but at the moment we're being brought, aren't we, by the parable to think we ought to be those who keep badgering God for the needs we see, spiritual needs we see in other people, until he answers And we know that he is not the one who turns over in bed and says, go away. But he is the God who has given us himself. And so we are to be utterly convinced that he will answer. We are to expect him to answer because he loves his people. And we're talking about our prayer to our Heavenly Father for other believers who are equally his children. And if we love them enough to pray for them, does not God love them enough to answer our prayers? Of course he does. And that leads from the parable to the first lesson, which is this. So I say to you, now, these verbs are in the continuous in the Greek. Really, I say to you, keep asking. Jesus has just said persistence. And he says, I say to you, keep asking, it will be given to you. Keep seeking and you will find. Keep knocking and it will be opened to you. Just like the man in the parable. You keep on asking for yourself and for others. Because you see, here it is in the Lord's Prayer, isn't it? What do we pray in the Lord's Prayer? In the first part, we pray in verse 2 here. For God's will to be done, God's name to be hallowed, God to be glorified, God's kingdom to come. Then when we turn to ourselves, it's all us. Give us day by day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins. Do not lead us into temptation. Deliver us from the evil one. The Lord's Prayer is certainly a pattern for prayer. But we are not praying according to the pattern if we only pray it for ourselves individually. We ought to be praying for others as much as ourselves. Indeed, I would say more, simply because there's more of others than there are of you. There's only one of us. One of each of us, but there's many others. We should be praying for each other. We keep on asking. We keep on seeking. We keep on seeking spiritual health for each one of us. We keep knocking For God to open the door and give us grace. And Jesus is teaching us 
that we are to expect him to answer when we are praying for the spiritual need of others. Let's open that a little bit. Spiritual need, what do we mean? Well, let's just think, Billy's going to come back and he's going to start a series on the fruit of the Spirit. He's already spoken of love. And there is, what, what, what are our spiritual needs? What do we need? We need peace in our souls, knowing that we are saved. Peace in our souls from day to day. We need joy in the Lord, which is our strength. We need endurance and long-suffering. We need holiness. We need to, to be able to overcome our temptations and to mortify our sins and to be, to be more holy, more holiness give me. And we need all these and many other blessings beside. And we know we need these if we just look in ourselves as Christians because we think that's what I need. But we know we need them because that's what God says he wants to give us. So we have prayer after prayer in the New Testament, and in the Old indeed, where we are told what it is that God wants us to pray for. We've been studying Colossians, some of us, and there we were last time, looking in Colossians 1 and verse 9 and Paul's prayer. We do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will. Now think of this as I say these words. Think of other believers and yourself. And say, do I know anyone who's got all this? Because the answer is no. To ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. That you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him. Being fruitful, fully pleasing him. Being fruitful in every good work. Increasing the knowledge of God. Strengthened with all might, according to his glorious power. For all patience and long-suffering. With joy giving thanks to the Father. We're all imperfect. We're all needy we don't know each other's spiritual needs always sometimes we do sometimes we don't but you can be utterly confident that the needs that you can see on the outside are less than the needs that they are on the inside because we know that's true for each of us don't we we know we appear to be better than we are <coughs> and i'm not talking about any hypocrisy I'm just saying that there are all sorts of things going on in all of our souls and all sorts of deficiencies and all sorts of spiritual diseases, can we put it like that, and troubles and trials. The sort of things that if they were bodily, you went along to the doctor and he'd give you the blood tests and you'd get the results and he'd call you in and he'd say, I'm sorry, so-and-so, you're going to die very quickly. You've got all sorts of things wrong with you that we didn't know about. Well, we're not meant to know each other's deepest needs. I'll come to how we might in a minute, but we, generally speaking, we're not meant to be. But that's what Jesus is telling us to pray for. He's not telling us, he's not giving us a blanket, because it couldn't possibly be, could it? A blanket, a blank check, if you like, saying you can ask for the salvation of any particular sinner and God will save them because God is sovereign and he will have mercy on whom he will have mercy. He's talking here about the needs within us. He, God may deliver from physical illness. He may give many physical blessings in answer to our prayers. We're not limiting and saying only pray for spiritual things. 
But we are saying that in that particular area, we are to expect and we are to ask and we are to keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking. What we are never to let be true of us is that very practical warning, isn't it, there in James 4 and verse 2, where he says, you do not have because you do not ask. And yes, you go on and he says, and you ask, but you get the ask for your things for your pleasures and you wonder why God doesn't answer. No, no, pray. Pray for spirit, the spiritual work. Pray for the Holy Spirit in every soul. It does not mean that you're the person who, for, whom, for whom God answers all their outward problems are going to be solved. It doesn't say that. But, but the inward doubts and fears and temptations and sins, that is what we are to be seeking God to deal with. To make us more and more like Christ. And you notice how Jesus says here in verse 10. For everyone who asks receives. And he who seeks finds he or she it would be. And to him or her who knocks it will be opened. There's an everyone. And a he. And a him. You see, it would be possible, wouldn't it, to listen to this and think, Jesus must be talking about what happens to some very special Christians who God will answer their prayers, but this can't be true of me. Can it? Yes, it can. Of course it can. But we do need at this point, I think, scripturally, to put in one caveat. In James, again, James 5 and verse 16, There is the brother of the Lord, isn't it? And what does he say? He says, confess your trespasses to one another. I've got the wrong wrong verse there. It's not 16. 7. Yes, it is 16. End of 16. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. I think there are as many translations of that phrase as there are translations of the Bible, and some of them give more obscurity than clarity. What it really is simply saying is this, is this. God promises to answer spiritual fervent prayer by righteous people. The spiritual is not in the James text, but that's the point. It's, It's fervent prayer. If you are walking with God, he gives the example of Elijah. Not because Elijah is a prophet, he says he's a man like us. He's not saying he's a special man. He was a special man, but that's not the point. He's saying, he's just a person. And he prayed. He was righteous. He was doing God's will. He was seeking God's will. He was seeking blessings for other people, for the people of God. And he fervently prayed, and God in his time answered. And that is an encouragement for us. But it's saying, isn't it? If what you really are trying to do is walk in the ways of sin, then you're not going to be praying a right for your brothers and sisters. But if you're walking with God and for God, keep on asking, keep on praying, and God will answer. Answer prayer that will glorify him. Now, at this point, let me say this. Do you not believe this? And if not, why not? And it might be that you will answer me because it doesn't seem to work. 
But the answer is, are you really doing it? Have you tried it? What do you pray for other people? Rightly, we pray for people's physical health. Rightly, we pray for the situations in which they find themselves. So that they say, I've got a really difficult time at work. And we say, we'll pray for you. And God answers. They have a particular need. That they have something urgent that someone needs to help with. And we can't help. And we pray and God answers. Because God is good. And God loves us. But how much then is our prayer life simply for others in all love and all sincerity. But for physical things. For provision. For healing. You see, I am not saying don't do that. Jesus is saying go deeper. Because he talks about God giving the Holy Spirit. We've read Colossians 1, part of it. Is that what you pray? Are those the sort of things, when you see or suspect, think, for some reason, that your friend is lacking in something, perhaps you see them fearful or, or doubting or miserable, or whatever it might be, and you see the, the symptom of the spiritual disease which is in each one of us, do you pray, believingly, that God will deal with that? Do you keep on praying until God does heal them? And they are found changed. And the joy that you find when, when you see a Christian and they're, they're delivered from their fear, their doubt, their temptation, whatever it was. And you know that you and perhaps others have been seeking this from God and God has been faithful and answered. But, of course, we don't tell each other our needs. But it might be that some might need to say more than they do, perhaps to a particular friend of the needs of their heart and their soul for prayer. But I'm not laying that down. But in each case of one of us, each of us, perhaps you can say, I need someone who I can share this with, who I can trust, who will pray for me about this and find someone who will. And know that they are acting as the friend at midnight. Let's go on to the third lesson. You should be praying for healing for hiccups, I think. <laughs> the third lesson. What does Jesus say? Well, again, it's obvious what he's saying, isn't it? If a son asks, verse 11, for bread from any father among you, will he give him a stone? You don't give a hungry child a stone, do you? Your child, anybody's child. This is mocking cruelty. And Jesus says the next thing effectively twice. Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? Daddy, I'm hungry. What are you going to give me, mummy? I'm hungry. And he says, I want a fish. I want an egg. I want something. It's, it's basic. Isn't it? Bread, fish, eggs, the basic staples. And you give something which is poisonous and will kill them. You don't give a hungry child a poisonous creature. That's dangerous, 
cruelty. And of course God does not mock his children. Nor is he cruel to us. And again, thinking, we wouldn't think he is, would we? If I said to you, will your heavenly father mock you or be cruel to you? You'll say no. And yet you see, and I have to say this somewhere, and I think we need to say it at this point. There are Christians, and it may be some here, I'm sure some here, who have never grasped what it means, the infinite love of God our Father, who wants to give us good things and wants us to succeed in the spiritual life. So that if, I probably used this illustration before, if we're running the race which the scripture talks of the Christian life, God is not someone who comes along and digs holes in front of us so we fall into them. But nor is he even the person who stands by the side of the racetrack and just takes our timing and says, you did a bit better today, you did a bit worse today. He is the one who, well, there's no illustration for it. He would be the father who is lovingly training his child to to do the best, but he's also the one who would come if he saw someone else put an obstacle in their way and pull it out of the way. There are times, aren't they, in some Christians' lives where major changes happen within a spiritual life. Our normal pattern of growth is gradual, But sometimes there is a a change, particularly of thinking, which has to happen. And it's almost like a light bulb moment, as they say. Sometimes it's about the sovereignty of God and someone suddenly realising that God is in control and, and, and that the doctrines of sovereign grace are true and they've denied them and now they see them and, and it transforms their spiritual life. And there are other areas where that can happen and one of them One of the most important, if not the most important, is this one. That you can go through life as a Christian. God has saved me. God has loved me. God is going to bring me to heaven. I'm going to get there in the end. When I die, it'll all be all right. But at the moment, your thinking is of God, that he is really not that bothered about doing anything for you in your soul. Oh, I can pray that he'll give me my physical bread and I can pray for things like that, but, but you haven't come to grasp the greatness of his love day by day, moment by moment. And I don't know your spiritual state, but I do pray that, that if your idea of God is of a hard taskmaster, And a stern father who's always saying, you didn't do very well today, son, did you? That you will come to see how wrong you are. That you will come to see that actually his love is infinite and he's pouring it out. And he'll pour it out more if you ask. You see the subtle change that's happened here. You start with praying for us in the Lord's Prayer. When you come to the friend at midnight, it's more pray for another person rather than everyone. But now, 
we more on ourselves. Because we, though it's absolutely right that we pray for the spiritual needs of others, we do not have to rely on someone else praying for us for God to answer. Oh, I wish that someone would pray about my need because then God would solve it. No, because he is the Heavenly Father of each one of us if we're believers. And Jesus has moved here, hasn't he, from verse 9 onwards to asking and receiving for ourselves. And he comes on in verse 13. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Yes, for those who ask him for others, because of the parable, but for yourself as well. What does God give for our spiritual needs? He gives the Holy Spirit who has already come to dwell within us. So we're born again of the Spirit, we're preserved by his working within us. He is dwelling within us, he is sanctifying us. That's the work that he does. God gives himself. He gives his Holy Spirit to work within us, not just to keep us till the day, but to heal our spiritual diseases are to make us more holy, more like Christ, which is sanctification. He is, the Holy Spirit is the streams of living water which purify and cleanse and refresh our souls. God gives his spirit and we should not be surprised because he has already given us his son once for all himself. He has given Christ to do the work of our salvation. Why would we doubt that having given us his Holy Spirit, that he will also do his part of the work in sanctifying and changing us and making us more Christ-like and enabling us to live for God? He works in individual souls to enable each one of us to live for him. Who? The person for whom you pray, including yourself. How desperately we need the work of the Holy Spirit in each of our souls. How many are spiritually dry? How many are evidently, and we don't look around, do we, to look at other people in criticism? But we see, unless we're blind, how, ever, how, how, how many of them are failing to live like this. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. How many Christians are just not loving each other as we should? How many are not loving God as we should? How many are not obeying in holiness as we should? We could go on and on and on. And it would bring us to despair if we didn't have verses like this in front of us which says it doesn't have to be like that. How many are entangled in worldly desires? How many are entangled in selfish desires? Don't love their brothers. Don't love God. Don't really care spiritually about one another. I don't know the answer to that question. But we need to know it for ourselves. 
We need the reviving work of God the Holy Spirit in our souls. The psalmist prayed, Will you not revive us again, O Lord, that your people might rejoice in you? Psalm 85 and verse 6. We need to be, as the Apostle Paul says, we need to be those who are being filled with the Spirit. It's continuous. Will not God give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Yes, he will. It is a continuing work. It is an ongoing work. But sometimes there is a need for a desperate, as it were, not just here's, as it were, the pill which will gradually make you better. God, That's what God does by the Holy Spirit. Sometimes here is the emergency operation you need for this particular need. And we can expect the Holy Spirit to do that too and to transform the believer. So we need more prayer. Not asking for more prayer meetings. We need more prayer as individuals for the spiritual needs of one another. Some of us need more prayer than we receive. For the re- and the reason we don't have it is because no one knows what is going on within us. And I by no means say we should be like those who would teach you've got to sort of pour it all out before each other. But sometimes a spiritual need needs to be made known, as I said before, perhaps just to one person you can trust and who will pray with you. We need to be a people who are seeking the work of the Holy Spirit within us. Within us, within each of us, within each other. Within Christians in other churches too, you may know of people in and. As I've been saying all this this evening and you're thinking there's so and so and they really, they need this. And do you pray for them? How much do we pray for one another? Let me finish with a verse of Charles Wesley from a hymn we don't have in our book. But I think this, this is striking. He says to God, come in thy pleading spirit down. On all who for thy coming stay. Of all thy gifts, we ask but one. We ask the constant power to pray. Indulge us, Lord, in this request. Thou canst not then deny the rest. Think about that. Let's pray. Lord God. We pray, I would pray now, we would pray particularly for any here this evening who think that somehow the spiritual life is meant to be a battle against you, wringing out the occasional blessing from a reluctant God. O Lord, if there are any such, show them your love, your infinite love in Christ. Pour out your Holy Spirit and change their minds and hearts. And for each and every one of us, may we be more assured of your love to each of us. And may we love one another more so that we pray more for one another. And that our greatest joy is seeing spiritual healing in the souls of one another. To see blossoming flowers, as it were, in a spiritual comparative desert. 
to see the streams of living water flowing from above your Holy Spirit in every life, bringing every spiritual blessing. Oh, hear us, we pray, our Father. Work your work in us. May we keep asking for ourselves and each other. Give us more of your working of your Holy Spirit, that infinite one who dwells within us, that comforter, that counsellor, that encourager, that strengthener, that helper. Oh Lord, give us of yourself. More and more we pray. And give us indeed, yes, the gift of constant prayer that you will hear and that you will answer. We ask it all. In the name of the one whom you gave us, that we might have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in him, even our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen.